Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Austin continues transforming into the next innovation powerhouse. This podcast explores the latest research on ecosystems and the macro and micro trends affecting how we grow, the people and companies building the next wave of innovation. I'm Michael Scharf, joined by Jason Scharf, and this is Austin Next. Welcome. This episode is all about the research, where the academic impacts the policy, so on to the interview. Ross Duvall is president and CEO of Heartland Forward. Heartland Forward's goal is to promote regional innovation and entrepreneurial ecosystems that foster job creation, wage gains, and economic growth for the American Heartland. This organization pursues its missions through independent, data-driven research, conferences such as the Heartland Summit, and strong policy recommendations. Heartland Forward works with universities, colleges, and the business community, public policy leaders and philanthropy, to analyze resources supporting the startup community and identifying workforce and talent gaps. I had the pleasure of meeting Ross when he was at the Milken Institute, an economic think tank headquartered in California. Over his 20 years there, he oversaw research on international, national, and comparative regional growth performance, as well as access to capital and its role in economic growth. He's been ranked amongst the superstars of think tank scholars by International Economy Magazine. Ross, welcome to Austin Next. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you reading that bio that my wife wrote for me. <laughs> hey, first question. Why this research and how does it apply today? Well, the research is really critical uh, because it goes back to when I first became head of what was then called Regional Economic Consulting Services at Wharton Econometrics, which was spun out of the Wharton Business School as an economic forecasting consulting company. Uh, it, was there, it was like 1993, 1994. And I was, I, I had come from the US Macroeconomic Service but had been a regional economist earlier in my career. And I started noticing that all the fastest growing metropolitan areas, where they measured that by job growth, wages, gross domestic product, they had a large technology component. And it was before people knew about Silicon Valley, but they hadn't really understood to the extent that technology was really determining which metropolitan areas and regions of the country were being successful. So that's what led me to start examining how did these technology centers become the leaders in the country? You look at the antecedents, you typically would see a major research university that was really committed to commercializing um, its, its research, meaning turning it into new firms and uh, transferring that IP into existing firms. The importance of talent and human capital and just overall kind of innovativeness, if you will, and in looking at the research paradigm. So 
um, it was kind of a, a new trend that was occurring that hadn't been picked up, picked up on. And I spent a lot of my years at the Milken Institute trying to better understand the factors that were important for those technology clusters in, to form. So I want to dive into kind of a recent research report that you put out called uh, The Most Dynamic Metros in the U.S. So how would you actually define a dynamic metro? Yeah, so kind of the broad definition, Jason, of a dynamic metro is a place that's able to sustain economic growth. It's not over-reliant on just a few large firms, but it has the ability to not only retain firms and people, but attract firms from other places, whether it's through expansion, um, and also to grow their own firms. So you're, you're looking for an economy that has uh, industrial diversity. But if you look in recent years, it's largely been professional services um, that have been providing the bulk of kind of the, the tech-based economy's growth. So there's different ways to measure it. We put together this index called Most Dynamic Metropolitans, which kind of represents in some sense the evolution of my thinking. You know, without having all 120 factors that I might look at, we tried to boil it down to various measures that really seem to make a difference. So, um, you know, you're looking at kind of performance over the last five years, most recent period, and then other indicators which are longer term predictors. So uh, one of the things I was really felt was critical is when you looked at wage growth, the technology centers, the San Francisco's, the San Jose's, uh, the Raleigh Durham's, go down the list, San Diego, Seattle, uh, Portland, tended to have the highest wage growth, but actually you needed to adjust it for the difference in cost and living and how, especially how housing prices were rising. So that led me to use a new kind of purchasing power parity measure um, that the, the BEA puts out that allowed us to kind of adjust for the differences in cost of living. And, and when you do that, you get a slightly different variation. Yeah, the, the Silicon Valleys in San Francisco still tend to be at the top of that list, but you get other places that come into the mix when you look at that. Uh, so I'm talking about the Nashvilles, the Austins, uh, the Ann Arbors, you see research universities. And we, we also look at performance in terms of, um, as I said, annual earnings, jobs, but then forward-looking, I've always had this notion, and I've done I've done some work to try and, try and test this, but looking at kind of measures of entrepreneurial ecosystems. In other words, you're trying to evaluate places' ability to start and scale up new firms. And so we, we found a relatively new data set that allowed us to really examine that question. Uh, it's the employer household longitudinal dynamics database um, that the, the government puts out now. Um, and what it allowed us to do is to look at young firms in different places around the country. Young firms defined as a firm five years of age or less. And we use employment at those young firms relative to total employment in a metropolitan area to try and gauge Kind of the breadth of entrepreneurial ecosystems. So the idea being the research shows that if you have these dense entrepreneurial ecosystems with lots of actors, 
you tend to have higher job creation. And then we also looked at another measure, which gets into kind of the impacts of what I would call knowledge-based economic development. Uh, one measure that's contained in this database by counties across the country is the share of total employees at young firms that have a bachelor's degree or above. So with the idea being that these kind of knowledge intensive firms is a proxy, those with a bachelor's degree or above that are at them, gives you an idea of kind of the industry they're in, whether they're technology based, whether they're going after regional and national markets, do they intend to scale up? They're not just family businesses. And so we found that basically those young firms that are knowledge intensive by this measure basically create twice as many jobs for communities as those that are more mainstream. So those indicators are more forward looking that we included in this index. And so it kind of adjusts for the business cycle. I, I, for example, I remember um, when I was living in California, we had the dot-com implosion, right? That happened in Silicon Valley. A lot of people don't realize the San Jose metropolitan area, which is basically what most people would define as Silicon Valley, lost 19% of its employment base wow. in a period of three years. Most people have no understanding of that because why? Well, because it has the ability to rejuvenate itself. And so you looked at those young firms uh, in, in a region like Silicon Valley and, and the knowledge intensity, many people felt that it would be over a decade before San Jose recovered all those lost jobs and it recovered them in four years. So the, the point being is that these are really robust forward indicators of job creation and economic growth across metropolitan areas around the country. I mean, to your point, for the all the pets.com that imploded in 2000, Facebook was, I think, four years away or four, six, you know, it was only, it was coming back in a, in a relatively short period of time. Google was, you know, invented in, I think, in 97, and the IPO was shortly after the bust as well, and same with uh, Amazon. So I think interesting, this young firm knowledge intensity, one of the issues that I've found with kind of the innovation metrics is it tends to be two forms. You either have the direct input metrics, IP production, number of jobs uh, in, say, STEM fields or, uh, you know, what you point, wage growth, or the direct metropolitan um, data, like job growth, GDP, and et cetera. But what's interesting, of course, if you're making world-changing innovations, they affect the GDP more than just the local region, right? And so I think, sure. you know, do you, what is your thoughts on something like a knowledge intensity? I hadn't, you know, hadn't heard this before as a way to kind of see that ability to scale beyond the region, to see, really measure kind of the intermediate on innovation. Yeah, so I look at it in terms of being an innovation pipeline. And entrepreneurship is critical to that because, you know, you want to have tech titans, you want to have your Intels, you want to have the Googles and go down the list. But you also need to have those new firms that are attacking and innovating. So it's important to look at the startup rates and the early stage scale-up rates and that knowledge intensity. I, I almost think it does a, it's a better job than looking at some of the other inputs. Now, you want to understand what are the inputs to creating that knowledge intensity. 
And based on my research and others, universities that are leaders in research, but more importantly, have a, a mission, a commitment to transferring that, that knowledge and intellectual property to the private sector, not only from their faculty, their students, and existing firms, and encourage that start activity to take place, they are really the seed capital for why you're successful. And, and then, of course, you need to have mentors, um, not only technology mentors, but business mentors, people who have started companies and kind of recirculated that knowledge. Maybe they've gotten involved in either angel investing or venture capital. So there's other intermediate things. So, you know, we all talk about R&D expenditures of, of companies mm -hmm. and they're important. Um, you can go down more early stage measures of that as well, but there's patents and patent citations. Um, so, I mean, if you wanna think about the extent that innovation spills over or affects not just the local economy, but, but national and international economies, it's in some sense, those measures of patent citations and where they're coming from. And so when you look at where the patents were filed and then who's citing them, you get kind of a, a lineage of the spread of knowledge, if you will, in those early stages and those connections of those nodes are really critical. But hey, let's face it, research and development uh, is critical, but it, it also needs to be occurring at younger innovative firms because they're gonna be very disruptive and as eventually many of your, your larger firms kind of mature, they're not gonna grow as fast and some might actually decline. You need to be replacing that, that innovativeness with new firms. Yeah, as someone who comes from the life science arena and seeing the pharma you know, R&D productivity continue to decline, just having R&D expenditures is not necessarily a direct linkage to an actual innovation. That's correct. And of course, you, you've, the big pharma companies have had some real challenges with the productivity of their R&D in recent years, which in many cases has led them to seek kind of external innovation. Of course, anyone who's ever worked at big pharma knows that's, that's not the way big pharma likes to think historically. Everything has, needs to be within their own research labs because they can do it better. But um, universities have played a key role in where biotech firms started and where they've scaled up. And then of course, a lot of the big pharma companies came along and acquired those biotech companies. Uh, but yeah, it's, you need to have dispersed innovation. Let's talk about eh, the elephant in the room last year and to an extent right now. I think everybody has talked about how COVID and the pandemic has been a great accelerator. Um, the trends that we've seen lately which ones do you think are really taking off now that the pandemic is beginning to wind down and, and which do you see are going to have the greatest impact on these metros? It's a great question, Michael. I think to a large extent, it's a combination of remote work. We're, we're seeing that. Of course, it's happened during COVID-19. How long will it last? Um, and then to a greater or lesser extent, kind of the relocation that was already starting to happen prior to COVID, but people didn't really see because they were still kind of caught up in the 
superstar cities up through 2016, 2017. So prior to COVID-19, if you look from 2017, really 2016 to 2019, you saw that there was net out migration taking place from coastal California and many other other tech centers around the country. And there was some growth in the mountain states. You, you think of Colorado and Utah, just phenomenal growth there. Uh, in some cases, it was entrepreneurs escaping. It, but what really drove that kind of 2016 to 2019 exodus from many of these tech centers was rapidly rising housing prices because you had very restrictive zoning, couldn't build enough structures, you know, think of Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And so if you weren't gonna be in the money as a young person very soon, meaning you had stock options that were gonna, they're gonna be in the money mature uh, very shortly, you had to question how long you could stay there. And maybe you wanted to, you were trying to start a family or maybe you had gotten married, but you simply, unless you could cash in a stock option or had you know, parents that could give you a large down payment, you, you couldn't afford a home there. So, and then you get into the frictions of life, commuting. You know, as an example, I lived just north of Los Angeles and commuted into Santa Monica on the west side of LA for about 15 years. And that drive went from initially about an hour and 10 minutes to about an hour and a half each way. Sometimes it could be an hour and 45 minutes. It, it just, and so many things can go wrong. And so you find yourself trying to leave for work at 5.30 and you know, trying to get home by 8 p.m. Um, so you look at those frictions and talent was already making choices to move out of the coast. As I said, you know, Utah's the Colorado's. You see it in Austin, it's been a talent magnet. Dallas, um, Nashville, uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, Minneapolis, you can see those places. So it, it was already starting to occur. Then you layer COVID-19 on top of that. And I would argue that we've seen kind of an acceleration in remote work that might've taken a decade or more, maybe it's 15 years, but we realized it in kind of a year where companies decided to allow their people to work remotely from anywhere. And many of them will call some of their people back, but in order to keep that talent, uh, as long as they're productive, you let them work from anywhere. So in some sense, that's a long-winded way of saying kind of the forces that are already in, at play pushing people out of the coasts, rising housing prices, friction. You then accelerate to COVID where remote work becomes a real possibility and there are many people, and I'm among them, that could see you know, somewhere up to 20% of, of professional workers re working remotely from other locations. So this, this opens up a lot of the country. And I think today it's ever more important that it's a, more of a battle for talent than it is just in terms of companies, in terms of relocation. You still want to try and convince companies to expand, but you need the talent and the workforce to be able to attract them. It's not, uh, human capital talent is more of an incentive than providing a financial incentive for a firm to relocate or expand. Right. 
I agree with you in terms of the talent war. Um, but let's take a look at one of the other key inputs for young companies to grow, and that's finances. I mean, a lot of folks wrote in 2016, 2017, 2018, that if you were a young company looking for early stage financing, you had to be in Silicon Valley. And now people are writing about the end of Silicon Valley. I don't think either are totally accurate, but what do you see in terms of the changes in the financial mindset of, of early stage and mid-stage investors of VC community and the angel community? Well, it's a great question, Michael. One of the things that I've heard from speaking to venture capitalists, especially those on Sand Hill Road, is it, you know, there used to be the old adage, and I've known several of them who've said, you know, I can manage a portfolio of companies, a broader portfolio, if they're close by. So that's one of the advantages of Silicon Valley, San Francisco. If I have to get on a plane, I can't manage as many companies. And especially if I have to have a connection to get somewhere, that's just beyond the pale. But what we've seen with Zoom, and I've once again heard this from several venture capitalists, they can meet and hold meetings over Zoom that they never would have done before. I mean, they might've checked in occasionally with Zoom, but you're now starting to see venture capitalists and early stage investors become more comfortable uh, being on Zoom and interacting with startup companies, beginning to scale up. And so it remains to be seen. We've seen the early stages of more risk capital coming to the heartland. It's still premature because, as you know, a lot of that goes to venture capital goes to follow-on investments. They're not early stage companies anymore. But I think over the next year or two, we're going to start seeing uh, more venture capital from the coast find their way to the heartland and, and see more venture capital actually raised and placed here in the heartland. We're starting to see angel investors becoming more comfortable investing in early stage companies here in the heartland. Of course, Steve Case has talked about this and the rise of the rest and his investment philosophy. And look, there, there's lots of good ideas around the country. Uh, the coast do not have a monopoly on ideas that are scalable into firms. But because of that concentration, the pooling of talent and capital and mentorship, they've had a real advantage. But I think now there's an opportunity for places that are not on the coast to begin to see more entrepreneurial-oriented economic development and demonstrate some success stories that will lead to more follow-on capital. Still early stage, but I think we're starting to see the hope of that occurring. So we're looking really at talent pulling capital along with it as it moves to remote locations. That's absolutely correct. That's a great observation, Michael. In fact, I was quoted in, in the Wall Street Journal late last year, making a similar comment. You know, what's, what's the importance? You know, when you look at the absolute numbers of these really technically talented people, they're doing remote work from the heartland or have decided to move here. It's, it's really not just the absolute number, but it's what they represent. You're talking about talent that's worked in these entrepreneurial ecosystems. They know how they work. 
And they may be coming here to work remotely for a Facebook or Google or some other firm, Salesforce, but they're more likely to end up starting their own business in a very technical field. And so you tend to get more spin off. So these are, these are individuals that are tech savvy. They've been exposed to working in those really star, superstar entrepreneurial ecosystems. And they can be kind of the early stage seed capital that can really pay huge returns to non-traditional places here in the center of the country. So we've been talking a lot about kind of the national implications of uh, kind of the changing innovation ecosystem, but this is the Austin Next podcast, so let's kind of bring it into Austin itself. Um, so your dynamic Metro's report ranked Austin as sixth. From your perspective, what are the strengths of the Austin ecosystem? Well, it has all the ingredients that you would look for in a regional innovation ecosystem. So University of Texas, Austin, has been creating talent for generations. Um, it's creating ever more talent than it has in the past. A lot of it's in the STEM fields. And it's also been a university that's had a long commitment to work with the private business sector to commercialize research. It's encouraged faculty and students uh, and, and really encouraged entrepreneurship and has been a key component. So. You combine that STEM talent that's been created with teaching of entrepreneurship and how important entrepreneurship is and the university's role in that. And then you've had several large firms in the semiconductor industry, you know, the Samsung's International that have come there. And Austin's really a unique place in terms of having that also the quality of life. So you think about all the California companies that have expanded to Austin. Why have they done so? You look at Apple, right? Um, I actually, back in 2003, I think it was in a private session with Steve Jobs, when he was trying to decide where he was gonna expand to, and he was thinking about, it's really expensive to hire engineers in Palo Alto and Silicon Valley you know, where should I look? And I, and I said to him, you know, one of the places you got to look to is Austin. You know, it's, it's creating that talent that you need, much lower cost of living. It's a more inviting business climate than California is today. It, it was no accident that Apple started looking at Austin. And I mean, who knows? It could end up being Austin's largest private sector employer at some point. So Austin combines this regional innovation ecosystem with a quality of life that's attractive to tech people, not only within the state of Texas, but to people that have been on the coast. And it has lower housing prices, although they're certainly starting to rise. And Austin still, it's a place where you can create middle-class jobs still, and not just the high-end thing. If you're, if you're going to stay in Silicon Valley and the whole San Francisco peninsula there, you have to be creating the highest value jobs, the most productive features. You're not going to be locating a semiconductor plant there. Craig Barrett, former CEO and, and then chairman of Intel, told me, I want to say 2001, we, will we, Intel, will never build another chip facility in the state of California. And he was right, right? <laughs> it hasn't happened. 
um, and is unlikely to. So Austin still provides an environment that is a, it's attractive to startups. It has that business friend, more business friendly climate. And another factor, no personal income taxes, right? If you're hoping to be in the money soon, that's something that's really important. And it's just, it's a really unique environment that's still welcoming. And, you know, you look at the, the arts, the culture, uh, South by Southwest and all the music festivals. And so it, it kind of, it brings all that together. And in some sense, it's, it's what coastal California might've been 30 years ago. It's been interesting in kind of our exploration of the ecosystem, this both economic and sector diversities, to your point, has been really interesting. I mean, one that, so you have the Apples, the Dells, the Facebooks and the like, um, you have semiconductors, you have CPG companies, you have a growing life science arena. Now we, we just had a, you know, Firefly, a new uh, unicorn in space exploration. You have all this high-end manufacturing so it's that one that kind of interesting sector diversity and then the economic diversity, your point, you've got, okay, you've got the, the white collar tech workers. You've got, you know, if you hear about the gigafactory of Tesla and some high end wages for, you know, people just graduating from high school, you've got Amazon and Walmart distribution plants nearby. So really that kind of, to your point, that real interesting intersection of kind of a run of rising tide lift with all boats. And then also this sector diversity that really, it goes back to your thing with the sustainable economic growth and not a reliance on just one, um, you know, one industry. Because I think, you know, as we're seeing the shifting of innovation centers, I mean, from your perspective, we we talk a lot about, you know, as Michael said, the 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 end of Silicon Valley, and that's probably not true. But you know, is that shift tending to be more about sector decline, like what we saw in Detroit from you know the '70s on, or is it really about kind of the growth of the next new thing? I would say today it's less about less about sector decline. You think of the, the Detroit's and some of the you know the upstate um, New York metros. Um, it, it, it's about new innovative locations and and what drives them. So the diversity element I think is so critical. I mean there obviously are advantages to specialization and having kind of industry concentrations with. You know what economists, what regional economists would call large location quotients. You know, meaning they're very heavily concentrated here. Um, it, it's about having that kind of innovation mix of industries, different size firms, and so those large firms can spin out human capital. So uh, a lot of large firms may not necessarily be willing to invest in a new product line. That came from their own organization because it might cannibalize an existing product line that they feel still has five to 10 more years to go, but those employees might leave and start their own company, sometimes with early stage investment capital. So, so for example, a lot of people don't realize that Intel had a huge, what was called a captive venture capital arm. In other words, Cisco did the same thing. They would be making early stage investments and with the option of someday maybe reacquiring them. But many, in many cases, they would take a stake in those companies. Uh, so it, it's all that. But I think it's more about talent can choose to be where it wants to be today. And we're seeing that really begin to determine where companies choose to expand and go. 
And to the point we made earlier about financings, you know, in a recent report you guys did, you said 35% of US GDP and 33% of new firms are in the heartland, but only 10% of VC investment. But at least in the last 18 months, at least in Austin, 8VC, Briar Capital, iFly VC, and more have been, and some under the radar, have moved to Austin either in putting um, you know, partners here or actually moving their headquarters here. And so it's becoming this kind of virtuous cycle of the talent's coming here, the capital's coming here, the companies are coming here, which of course are making the talent come here, the capital come here, and the companies come here. And I mean, how do you see this kind of migration really changing the dynamic of investment here? I think it's all favorable. It's not going to happen overnight. But to me, it's it, it's a war over talent. And where talent goes, the capital is going to increasingly follow that. So back in the old days, Sand Hill Road, they would force companies uh, that they invested in to move to Silicon Valley because to be one of their portfolio companies, they could monitor things better closely. And I would argue that that's not the case so much anymore. I think we're going to start to see some of the capital follow where the talent is and not force the talent to move to where the capital is. So it, it, it's going to go back and forth and it's hard to say which happens first, but I really do believe that where talent chooses to go, capital is going to begin to follow it more than vice versa. Well, it's not all fun and games and roses and blue skies. Do you see Austin hitting an inflection point? Are there still areas of weaknesses possibly that will uh, uh, limit our future growth here? Well, it's beginning to see some early signs of what happening in coastal California. Uh, it doesn't have the zoning restrictions that you see in coastal California in terms of housing. Um, but housing prices have really shot up, meaning home prices north of 500000 now. Uh, certainly still way south of what you see in coastal California and other tech centers on the coast. But that will begin to become a limiting factor, I think. Um, but not to the extent that it, it is in coastal locations that have the restrictions on um, new building permits for residential units. So that's certainly it. Um, Austin is a startup capital, but historically it hasn't been as important. Uh, when you look at the share of, of, of terms of startups relative to existing firms in Austin, it's, it's you know, certainly one of the top 20, the top 25. I think that's an area that Austin still needs to focus on. Because at some point, the ability to attract apples looking to expand uh, or the oracles relocating their headquarters, like you want to keep that going as long as possible. But that's going to be an area that Austin needs to continue to focus on. It's well positioned. And I would argue that it could become a rival to Silicon Valley, although Silicon Valley is really unique animal. It, it's not going away. It'll reconfigure itself. Um, it, it, it may be housing prices kind of pausing and uh, will allow its position to improve somewhat in Silicon Valley. But it's hard to see anything on the near-term horizon 
that pres presents a challenge for Austin. It's still attracting talent. You look at the net in migration right, rate. Um, a lot of people ask me, Ross, if there's any one kind of near-term indicator that you would look at to determine the vitality of a location, I would have to say it's the net in migration rate. You're looking at those people leaving versus moving in as a share of the existing population. And as we just saw from the latest census numbers over the past decade, uh, among those metropolitan areas with a population of a million or above, Austin had the highest net in migration rate in the country. You know, and, it's, and it's so much of that talent that's coming in is, is educated, right? They have bachelor's degrees, they have master's and above. And, you know, that's just a virtuous cycle. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.